A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers, God let light shine in our hearts, that we in turn might make known the glory of God shining on the face of Christ. This treasure we possess in earthen vessels to make it clear that its surpassing power comes from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way possible, but we are not crushed. Full of doubts, we never despair. We are persecuted, but never abandoned. We are struck down, but never destroyed. Continually, we carry about in our bodies the dying of Jesus, so that in our bodies, the life of Jesus may also be revealed. We do not lose heart, because our inner being is being renewed each day, even though our body is being destroyed at the same time. The present burden of our trial is light enough and earns for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We do not fix our gaze on what is seen, but but on what is unseen. What is seen is transitory. What is unseen lasts forever. Verbum Domini Deo Gratia
conosco. Sequentius Sancte Evangelii, secundum Jesus said to his disciples, Live on in me as I do in you. No more than a branch can bear fruit of itself apart from the vine can you bear fruit apart from me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who lives in me and I in him will produce abundantly. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A man who does not live in me is like a withered, rejected branch, picked up to be thrown in the fire and burnt. If you live in me and my words stay part of you, you may ask what you will and it will be done for you. My Father has been glorified in your bearing much fruit and becoming my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Live on in my love. You will live in my love if you keep my commandments, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and live in his love. Verbum Domini. It's been my privilege to be here with all of you this week, but especially to be with our dear sisters. Um, and we want to uh, congratulate them and uh, be rejoice with them on this feast day of their foundress, St. Clair. This is not the major feast day of the foundress. Of course, August 11th is the major liturgical feast of St. Clair of Assisi. Today's a more minor feast, which I'll explain in a moment, but um, who can not say that the words of the gospel for chosen for this Mass are so appropriate, especially in the context of this wonderful community of sisters, so fervent and fruitful, that my Father is glorified in your bearing much fruit and becoming my disciples. Their foundress was assigned the title of uh, patroness of communications because St. Clair is said to have bilocated, been in more than one place at the same time. So he's made the patroness by the Church of the Media. And I think because our Lord uh, knew that that would be such an influence in the current modern culture that God himself wanted to have a sanctifying hand in that world. And I remember sitting with Mother Angelica in one of the parlors here several years ago uh, before her last major stroke. And you know, when she came down here to Alabama, she had uh, from our hometown, from Mother's hometown, uh, when she came down here, she had no idea that she would be, have anything to do with the media. Uh, she had a whole different vision about building a monastery in the South, and it was really to pray for racial uh, harmony in the South. Uh, some of you may know that story, but we were sitting there together and we were talking about all the things that had happened in all these years. And she said to me, uh, honey, uh, 
said God had a plan for my life and I was along for the ride. She just kept seeing doors open, God's will manifesting itself and uh, as a faithful Christian and daughter of St. Clair, she followed that inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that God continues to bless and strengthen and renew this magnificent community of poor Clare nuns that gives such great witness to their foundress. And it's my privilege to say a few words on today's feast, which is the finding of the body of their foundress, St. Clair. Um, she was almost half the age of St. Francis when she heard him preach for the first time in her home parish during a Lenten mission. And she was so inspired by the enthusiasm and the obvious spiritual enlightenment and liberation of this famous young man in her hometown who had spent most of his youth per pursuing worldly desires for the sake of his father's worldly ambitions. And she was from a noble family, far wealthier than his. In fact, uh, everything that her family, her last name was Ofreduccio, everything that her family was, St. Francis's father wanted to be. He, he was sort of a wannabe noble, right? But she was a noble. She came from nobility, her family, her father was from a noble Roman family. And St. Francis wanted his son, to use his son basically to achieve that kind of upward mobility. The, the origin of this liturgical feast is a little bit more practical. It has to do with the finding of her relics after she had been buried in what is currently the Basilica of St. Clair uh, in the year 1850. In that year, there were excavations done both of the Sacro Convento to, do, to find the body finally of St. Francis and also the same year of St. Clair. And the idea was for the faithful to be able to venerate and to be close to the earthly remains of these two great religious founders. Um, but she was first buried uh, when she died in 1253, 600 years before, briefly in her own parish church of San Giorgio, St. George. And uh, St. Clair's family, as I mentioned, was very wealthy. And in fact, they had two homes in Assisi. They had a palace, a palazzo, that was literally in, in the front of the facade of the church. If you go to Assisi, you can see it, it's still there today. Her family home is literally on the plaza, right outside the doors. And that was, a very, that was a, uh, an important church. The bishop lived there when she was a child. It, it was the most important church in Assisi at the time and her family home literally attached to the facade of the church. But they didn't have just that palazzo, they also had a castle up on, above uh, the city that they would go up there when it got too hot or uh, because 
the Middle Ages had a lot of other issues with the way plumbing was carried out. Uh, they could get out of that mess and they could go up to the refreshing mountain to their beautiful castle that overlooked the city. They were a very wealthy family. She had th one of three girls and she had a very pious mother. In fact, very courageous mother. Uh, her mom undertook all of the major Christian pilgrimages of, pil pilgrimages of the Middle Ages. She went, she did the, uh, the Via in Spain uh, to uh, Santiago de Compostela. She, uh, the, she went on the pilgrimage in the Holy Land. Uh, her mother was courageous. I mean, in those days, uh, it was m even more dangerous for women to travel, but she was such a devout believer in the Lord that uh, her mom undertook these great devotional pilgrimages. And she instilled this enthusiasm, even though they were wealthy, they didn't have to necessarily be religious to prove anything. Her mom was a very sincere, sincerely observant Christian and Catholic. And so in a way she inherited her own mother's fervor, you could say. She died in, uh, as I said, 1253, at the age of 59. She wasn't even 60 years old when she died. And St. Francis died, of course, in the year 1226, in his early 40s. And uh, it's hard to conceive that these two people who were relatively young uh, started a movement that went all over the world and became a source of intense spiritual new great saints. How many saints from the two orders of Francis and Claire do we have in the history of the church? Uh, St. Padre Pio used to say, we had his feast day yesterday, St. Padre Pio used to say that the greatest miracle of St. Francis was that after 800 years, young men were still joining his order. But today is, as I said, a more specific feast about their earthly remains, their relics. And uh, just to say something about that, because that's a tradition for us as Catholics. It always has been. It has to do with affection, because we believe as Christians that life doesn't end here. It continues in a more perfected way after having lived a, a, a life of grace here in grace. And so the people that have gone before us are always connected to us. Our love for them, our affection for them is just as real as then when they walk beside us on earth. And so it makes sense the mementos of their life would be very important. Perhaps most important is their remains, which we always hold in reverence. Um, and uh, it's also true to say that the presence of living saints, we think of so many of them, who God used to, to physically heal the sick and the diseased while they were alive, uh, that that wouldn't end even after their death. And there's so many stories of that. And, you, and when we're challenged about it and say, well, where's that in scripture? Where's that in the Bible, relics? You take them back, of course, to the Old Testament, where people just touching the tomb of the prophet Elisha, the Old Testament, were healed by touching his tomb. 
We think of the New Testament and the, the uh, St. Paul's handkerchief uh, that just touched to the sick uh, was said to have cured many ill people and sick people. The shadow of Paul, of, of Peter passing by, same effect. And then of course the dramatic example of our Lord himself who the woman with the hemorrhage reached out just to grab his garment as he passed by and she was healed of her physical illness. Is it somehow power, electrical, magical power in his clothing? No, our Lord told us. It's the faith. It's the faith of the person, but he uses the instruments, incarnational, we're an incarnational faith. He uses the incarnational elements of clothing and physical remains to continue to heal and touch as he does in the living, right? And so there is biblical foundation for our reverence uh, for the earthly remains of the saints. Um, when St. Clair's body was discovered in 1850, in, in the Middle Ages, relics were very highly sought after, and so to protect her, they buried her really deep in the ground and under the main altar of the uh, current basilica, medieval basilica. And so it took quite a while to find her. When they finally found her stone coffin and they opened it, uh, she was pretty well intact. She had, her, her skin was a bit aged brown, a bit from age, but um, after being exposed to the air and to, uh, to being cleaned a few times, her body started to deteriorate. And so what we have of St. Clair currently are, are just her skeletal remains, only visible to the nuns in the soccer. On the outside, if you go to Assisi, what you see is a wax reconstruction. Uh, uh, and now the face was actually computer designed after the structures of her her bones. But uh, St. Francis was just uh, skeletal remains when they found him. But there's great affection for these two saints and great reverence at their places of uh, their relics. And I just, uh, just a sense, uh, just a word or two about this woman. Because as I said, she came from affluence. And it would have been normal and easy for her just to live in that state the rest of her life. She didn't have to step out of that comfort zone. And in fact, her family fought her doing it. In fact, chased after her when she went to St. Francis to be received into his order. But she, she literally wrapped her arms around the altar and they were trying to pull her out of the chapel this feisty, beautiful, medieval Italian girl would not let go of the altar. She was bound and determined to chase after that dream that St. Francis instilled in her heart of a love beyond earthly love. It was a love for Jesus crucified, the humble God who entered into the world in a humble way, died in an even more dramatically humble way, 
and remains with us in a humble way. Just one last story about her so you understand something of the, the charism of this incredible woman. Not only was she the first woman in the history of the church to write her own rule, and she, only did, she didn't do it for that reason, to prove that a woman could write a religious rule. No, that's not why she did it. Medieval nuns took their dowries to the monasteries that they would have otherwise used for their marriages. And in fact, many monasteries would only accept women with large dowries, right? So if you were poor, they're like, well, you have nothing to bring us, you know, you can't join, right? They'd only take women who had large dowries, right? Many of them, especially the more prominent monasteries. And so it became a status symbol, the wealth of these monasteries that they would gain from taking the daughters and the children of very wealthy families. Claire was from one of the most wealthy families of her day, and she wanted none of that, none of that. She wanted what she called the privilege of poverty. They, 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 were, they were hesitant to do it, and because they didn't want to make her vulnerable as a woman in the Middle Ages, but Claire insisted on it. She said, no, nothing, 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 nothing. She slept on straw. This girl who had been born into privilege spent her adult life sleeping on straw like an, a farm animal. She got sick about the last part of her life, but she persevered. On a particular, and this, what I'm going to tell you right now, is still celebrated in Assisi to this day. There was an event that happened. So, the, the convent of San Damiano, which is the little church where St. Francis had his vision of our Lord speaking to him, that, uh, as you can see, the church is falling into ruins. I go rebuild my church, the famous cross of San Damiano. That little chapel that he then rebuilt with his own hands became the first convent of what she called the poor ladies of Assisi. She didn't call her order after her, she didn't call her own order the Order of St. Clair. The Pope gave it that name after she was canonized she called her order the Poor Ladies of San Damiano. And that's where they were living. Now that place was outside the protected medieval walls of the city. And there's a reason why medieval cities had protective walls. A group of uh, Saracens came to, dis uh, excuse not Saracens, but um, marauders descended on the city because Assisi had been in many battles with the neighboring town of Perugia over political issues. A group of enemy soldiers descended on the town. And of course, the walls protected the city. They were outside. When the soldiers came, they came up the road 
that went right in front of their convent. There, the, the friars didn't live there. The friars didn't live with the nuns, with, you know, out of propriety. The, the friars lived in separate quarters. St. Francis, they originally lived there, but they gave that to St. Clair. They moved out. So in a way, they were exposed. And there was no one to help them. There were no soldiers down there. And uh, you can imagine how frightened these women, when they heard the soldiers coming up the, the way to their convent. And uh, it, they stirred the whole convent up, and the sisters went to Sister Claire, Mother Claire, and said, Mother, the soldiers are coming. And she knew just what to do. She says, I'm not going to go, I'm going past the knights, I'm going past the soldiers, I'm going straight to the king. And she went into the chapel, and she went to the tabernacle, and she did something that a person who's not ordained is not normally supposed to do, but out of desperation, she took the saborium containing the sacred body and blood of Jesus Christ, and she stood. This medieval woman stood outside of that convent holding our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. When these soldiers saw her standing there with her confidence and the sisters around her, they stopped in their tracks and they turned around and they didn't sack the city. That's the kind of woman this was. She had such trust in Jesus, the power of Jesus in the Eucharist. The sisters here have that same confidence. It is our privilege and our joy to pray for them. We love them, we support them, they pray for us. Who could imagine what this little part of Alabama would be like without these dear sisters? None of this would be here. We wouldn't be here. The grace that emanates from this place because of the faith of that woman and her daughters is still bringing light, which is her name, Claire. It means light into a darkened world. God loved them. Let us pray and support them. And St. Clair of Assisi, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.